Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from my basement in New York City, and this is episode 126 of Intercepted. Well, this has been a pretty major week in both political developments, and with the coronavirus pandemic. Bernie Sanders, of course, has suspended his campaign for the Democratic nomination for president, and it seems likely that we're going to be facing a choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump on the ballot in November. We are also seeing a continuing rise in the cases of infections and deaths from COVID-19 across the United States. And I think a lot of us have been walking around or sitting in our homes, feeling this ominous sense of what the future might look like for us, for our families, for this country, for the world. And I've also been thinking a lot about the claims of American exceptionalism or greatness and juxtaposing that rhetoric with the systematic failure to prevent unthinkable catastrophe for so many people here in the United States. We are nearing 20 million unemployment claims just in the past few weeks alone. We are seeing hospitals struggling to obtain basic supplies. We're getting data showing that the virus is hitting African Americans disproportionately. And we're watching both political parties unanimously voting for the most massive corporate economic stimulus in US history. Now, I'm not alone in this observation, but what we are seeing right now in bold, stark ways about our reality is that contrary to the rhetoric of American greatness, we are witnessing a failed state that placed all of its faith in the radical ideology of capitalism, the free market, at the expense of protecting the lives of our people. And I saw a tweet the other day from the journalist and academic Corey Robin describing a conversation that he recently had with Seth Ackerman, the executive editor of Jacobin Magazine, uh, where Seth laid out some basic theses that he has been bouncing around about the U.S. as a failed state. So I thought it might be helpful for our listeners to flesh all of this out a bit more and to discuss what the suspension of the Sanders campaign means, what it means to have Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, what it means to have systematic failure of public institutions in the United States at the time of a pandemic. So Seth Ackerman joins me now. Seth, thank you so much for being here on Intercepted. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I want to start just by asking you your assessment of what it means that um, Bernie Sanders has suspended his campaign for the Democratic nomination for president. Well, obviously, we saw this coming for a long time. I think that the analysis um, of you know why this happened isn't all that mysterious. I think pretty much everyone has um, recognized, or at least people who've got their eyes open, recognized that uh, Bernie was in the lead for a while. He was he's a very popular figure in the Democratic Party. There have, were always doubts about his electability, and then um, there was a, a block of voters who uh, were intensely concerned about electability, took their cues from party leaders. And the party executed magnificently this um, spectacle of endorsement and rallying around Biden. Um, what it means for the future, I mean, <clears throat> I think that even the people who uh, executed that magnificent uh, spectacle uh, probably themselves have some some private doubts about uh, about Biden. 
And as far as um, Bernie's concerned, that I think is is a big question. I mean, you know, in 2016, there has been sort of there's emerged a kind of a legend of Bernie's unwillingness to campaign for Hillary Clinton. Obviously, the Clinton camp would like to be able to put as much blame as possible for her defeat on on Bernie Sanders. And I think I you have to assume that that kind of dynamic is going to play out this time, whatever happens. I mean, in other words, even before the election happens, you can already sort of see, I think, an effort at a contest of um, based on sort of a perception management game about is Bernie being sufficiently loyal to the ticket and supportive of Biden? Is he going to be and his supporters and, and, and all the rest of it? So, I, you know, as far as the meaning is concerned, I... I have to say I'm I'm a lot more optimistic maybe than than some other supporters uh, of Bernie Sanders. You know, I think that I never expected him to get as far as he got. And I think that the um you know, if you look just at the age breakdowns of the uh, of support for him versus the other candidates and of favorability in general, um you just have to assume that his kind of politics uh, are are a lot more likely to be the future. Uh, of the party or American politics generally uh, than than Joe Biden's. You know, I agree with your analysis that, that you had this incredible quick mobilization to consolidate the non-Bernie voters and power structures in terms of campaign infrastructure around Joe Biden. And of course, Barack Obama played a behind the scenes role uh, in calling people and, and offering counsel. And, you know, we don't know the extent of of how much involvement any particular powerful Democrats had, but it was clear that they did this incredibly quickly. And as you say, it was very successful. Um, but the, the the flip side of that is now you're stuck with Joe Biden. And it may be the case that Joe Biden is not Trump and he's Barack Obama's good friend is enough to beat Donald Trump. But, you know, I think those of us who have been warning about the fact that Joe Biden has a very right-wing legislative record, has his own questions about sexual assault and misconduct toward women, has a lengthy record of lying or plagiarism. It's why one of his earlier campaigns for the presidency was tanked. Um, and the fact that, you know, the, the most charitable way of putting it is that he he's a gaffe machine. The other way of looking at it is that Biden frequently seems to not be aware of what office he's running for, what room he's in, or who he's even speaking to. So, you know, my, my question now, and, you know, people get tired, oh, Bernie bros, and all you guys are doing is you're trying to harm Joe Biden because you want Donald Trump to be president. And most of the people that I know who were excited about Bernie Sanders are deadly afraid that what the Democratic establishment has done by coalescing around Joe Biden is increasing the chances that Trump gets four more years or more to further consolidate his authoritarian rule. What's, what surprises and shocks me is uh, the absence or the apparent absence, I don't see it anyway, of the kind of panic uh, on the part of the Democratic establishment or their supporters or you know just people who are party loyalists and who have a, a, a voice, uh, have a platform. You know, you it's understandable that if you're, you know, per, Tom Perez or whoever, you're not going to be expressing that kind of thing openly. But even people who are, you know, in positions who are journalists, you know, who have a certain independence and can speak out and say, this is a bad idea. Don't let's not go down this path. I feel like there's a there's a I get a sense of, of denial. I, I don't know if in a, in a way that is different from it, from things I've seen in the past of, of an unwillingness to face the situation that they're in. And I agree that you look at some of those clips of Biden, and it becomes hard to it becomes hard to picture this guy winning the presidency against an incumbent. Number one, I think Donald Trump in 2016 his biggest handicap was that even people who liked him, even people who you know thought you know I like the the way this guy talks, they had their doubts about you know can this guy really be president? What if he, you know, is he going to do something crazy? He's going to start some bizarre war or, you know, cause a depression or something like that. And um, once that, once you're an incumbent and you've had four years in power, and obviously Trump has, you know, he has caused one crisis after another, but if it's a question of the devil you know versus the devil you don't know, Donald Trump is no longer the devil you don't know. And so once that baggage is gone from Trump and we're in the middle of what is, in fact, a, a, a real crisis, 
And you look at Joe Biden's you know, performances in these public appearances, which are, of course, increasingly rare, it just becomes hard to envision this. And, and the, what I don't understand is why you don't have people like, I mean, I don't want to name names in order to like denounce them or anything, but you know, people who, the, the kind of people who sort of, um, you know, are the independent voices of the democratic establishment, people who are critical of Bernie Sanders and his movement and his supporters, and, and, and we're hoping for a different outcome in 2016 um, in terms of the support that Bernie Sanders got. Those are people that you would expect now to be expressing panic, and I don't see it. And I, I wonder what you think. Do you think that that they are in denial that they actually aren't panicking, or do you think that this is a re- remarkable performance of sort of concealing their their actual uh, feelings? Well, I mean, I'll I'll answer that just by pointing to a fact, which is that you know, less than an hour after Bernie Sanders had his call with supporters to announce that he was suspending his presidential campaign, you had dozens of. Uh, former staffers for Hillary Clinton who organized a Zoom video chat, and the invitation was, bye-bye Bernard, HFA celebration toast. I mean, when you look at the way that the epitome uh, stereotype of establishment corporate Democrats during a pandemic with Donald Trump in power, they organize a Zoom conference call to celebrate the uh, the candidate who forced Medicare for all and raising workers' wages to the top of the discussion in this country. That's what they want to be doing during this time is celebrating. My answer to your question is, if you look at how Biden's campaign uh, and his surrogates, if you look at Hillary Clinton universe, at how they talk about the movements and the people that were behind Bernie Sanders, it seems like they don't get it, that they somehow think that the never-Trumper, quote-unquote, traditional Republican and moderate Democrats, that that's going to be enough to beat Donald Trump. And I I really, I hope they're right. I hope that Donald Trump is gone. Um, but I don't think that shitting all over working people, immigrant rights activists, climate change activists, and holding little Zoom cocktail hours to, uh, you know, denounce or celebrate Bernie Sanders' departure from the race— is a good message to have if your main priority is getting rid of Donald Trump. Well, yeah, I obviously sympathize with the general sentiment there, but you know, I have to say that I find there there to be something almost kind of I don't want to say refreshing, but I think that there's a there's something almost healthy about the the openness of the openness of a I mean it's a little bit nasty what they did, but there's an openness of a recognition that there is an actual difference, a split, uh, a cleavage within the party between their type of politics and Bernie Sanders. There was a long time when there was an effort to sort of deny that. You know, there was a, a long time when people who were against Bernie took the line, well, you know, he's there's no real difference between him and Hillary Clinton or whoever. They're, we're all progressives and he's just sort of uh, creating an artificial division. I think there's something healthy about that willingness to get up and say, look, we don't like this guy. We don't like his movement. We don't like his politics. I think that clarifies things in a way that maybe is maybe is the best, most um, most auspicious outcome of the whole Bernie Sanders uh, saga of the last four years is the creation of sort of common knowledge in the public that there is a difference between the type of politics you know that you get from Hillary Clinton or Kamala Harris or any of the most of the other candidates and somebody like Bernie Sanders. And what's, what's amazing is, I mean, I wrote a piece about this a, a few months ago, it was right after Nevada, maybe. And what was remarkable was how these normie Democrat rank and file primary voters, they love Bernie Sanders. I mean, even the ones who didn't vote for him, most of them really liked him. And I say this, this is not just speculation. I mean, I've been looking really closely for an article I'm going to come out with about, about his favorability ratings versus Biden's, which is different from you know, his, people's actual vote intention. And you can see that people who didn't vote for him like him a lot, relatively speaking, compared to the other candidates. And they, these sort of rank and file Democrats, very often in the at least in the early contests, they didn't really perceive some deep, unfathomable uh, f- split in the party between Bernie Sanders and the other candidates. They thought when they listened to Bernie Sanders, they thought, okay, well, this is a guy who's obviously, you know, he doesn't mince words. Um, he doesn't try to to sort of. Um, make his politics sound milder than, you know, in order to be palatable for moderates. But they didn't see any fundamental difference between his politics and the politics of the other candidates. 
And that was sort of part of the problem for the Democratic establishment is that they desperately needed these people to start seeing Bernie Sanders as being an alien, you know. You know, so I think that in the future, that revelation that it turns out that ordinary rank and file Democrats, when they hear Bernie Sanders, a guy who calls himself a socialist, talks in class conflict type of language, when they hear that, they think, yeah, that's the kind of politics I like. Maybe this guy can't get elected or something, but that's the kind of politics I like. That discovery about about their own base, um, and this, by the way, includes African-Americans under under the age of 50, African-Americans preferred Bernie to Joe Biden. I think that discovery is you can't you can't forget that you can't unlearn that fact. There does seem to be this pattern uh, where during the primary and especially when it when it intensified or narrowed down to Bernie versus Biden, this sense that that you got from uh, the the Biden wing, the Biden and Hillary Clinton wing of the party was when Sanders people would point out problematic aspects of Joe Biden's record or lies that Joe Biden was openly telling, you know, got arrested in apartheid South Africa, was doing sit-ins and, you know, during the civil rights struggle etc. There was this, but Bernie, but Bernie, what about Bernie? What about this? What about this essay that Bernie wrote in 1969 or the one he wrote in 1972? And it's like, they don't have Bernie to kick around anymore. You know, this is the real game now. You've got Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. And I think it was a big mistake for people in Biden's camp not to come up with a better response to what is going to be a deluge of ads and attacks, some of which will be true, that are going to be unleashed on Joe Biden. It really seemed to be a collective, put my hands over my ears and yell, Bernie, 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 I can't hear you. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, throughout the campaign, the mantra was that, well, Bernie Sanders may have good poll numbers against Trump in these matchups, but wait until, you know, he's never been vetted. Just wait until the the ads come and the attacks and the Fox News 24-hour, you know, uh, attack machine. I mean, you're you're right. The vulnerability on the part of uh, Biden, I think, is is much is much greater because the things that they were going to attack Bernie for, Bernie's sort of political persona and his brand and his sort of shtick, is all about. Look, I don't care about the bullshit. I don't care about you know sort of the personality politics or like gotcha stuff. And he doesn't do very he doesn't do that kind of politics in when he's you know running against somebody else. He doesn't do that kind of negative politics. He sticks maybe to a fault, maybe to you know overly to the the same script. Uh, he wants to talk about the 1% and healthcare and all the rest of it. And I think that's part of his appeal. You know, people see this guy and they, they think this guy is very sincere. Um so when he's be, when he was going to be attacked by the Republican sort of machine, what did you, you were part of an organization in 1973 that, you know, the head of it said this nice thing about the Ayatollah or or something like that. You know, B- Bernie Sanders would very credibly be like yeah, who cares? Uh, sorry, I'm going to go back to what I was saying before about you know Medicare for all, and people would would look that you know, he's he's not there's no defensiveness about it. Whereas with Biden, you know his whole appeal is who the guy that he is. What a great guy he is, you know. It's it's really about who he is, his character. He's like a he's middle class Joe who cares about your problems, and he's a personable guy. And and I have to say, I personally, I find it difficult to hate. Uh, Joe Biden on a personal level, you know, there there are other sort of mainstream Democrats that you know I feel like I love to hate, but Biden, you know, you know, I almost feel you almost feel sort of a you know tenderness for this guy who's a little bit in a, out of his depth right now. You know, for, first of all, I think it's important to translate something for people that are not immersed in activist or organizing or left politics or members of the Democratic Socialists of America. For many, many, many people on the left, Bernie Sanders is the compromise candidate, you know, and, and there are criticisms of Bernie Sanders from the left. Bernie has had a bunch of bad votes on some very important issues and not just the gun votes that people like to harp on, but, you know, his Iraq war position was bad. His position on the war in Yugoslavia was uh was bad and in support of a 78-day bombing campaign carried out uh, or in circumvention of the United Nations. Like, there are things to debate about Bernie Sanders, but for a lot of people on the left, Bernie Sanders was the compromise candidate. And they look at someone like Joe Biden and say, you know, this is a right-wing guy wearing a, a Democratic Party hat. And, um, you know, I don't want anything to do with that. I mean, he's, he's, he is well to the right of where the sort of mainstream Democratic Party discourse was. At least when the when the primary started, and he seemed to be going out of his way, especially early on, to almost to bait 
the the left. And when I say the left, I mean, you know, the left of the Democratic Party, you know, talking the things that he would say, the contemptuous things about millennials and I don't empathize at all. I was a little bit baffled. I thought, I mean, this can't be an accident. There's got to be some strategy behind it, but I don't see what it is. He told immigrant rights activists who asked him a perfectly legitimate question about the policy of deportations under the Obama-Biden administration to go and vote for Trump. Yeah, well, sometimes this this shades into like a question of, about the, the sort of the cognitive uh, status sort of thing. I mean, he, he I, I was just watching a clip of him. Uh, maybe you remember this. He was in the Iowa State Fair and some college kid comes up to him and asks him a, a question about gender. And his answer was, there's three of them. And then when she when she asked him what they are, uh, he goes, don't mess with me, kid. Right. Okay. Well, although I will say that the vote for Trump thing, I I don't think that that was a gaffe or some, uh, you know, uh, some consequence of uh, of of a degeneration going on. I, I, I mean, I think he that's something that Biden seems to quite frequently say to people. But in the case of someone advocating for immigrant rights, I think it's a particularly devastating example of how not to win people over or show you're serious about their issues. Yeah, it's just bad politics. I mean, no, nobody would give the advice that you'd say that something like that to a per, you know to a person in that situation. On every level, this is not the candidate you'd want. And you know, you can see the establishment in, did not unite around him early. He was hoping that was going to happen. That was his sort of strategy. Was he was going to get the whole sort of party establishment behind him from very early on? They didn't want to do it. They looked at him. They listened to him. You know, they probably liked him, but he was not getting money. He was not getting endorsements. For all of these reasons, this incredible, stunning, magnificent um, coup that they pulled off, and I, I think it's completely legit. There's nothing illegitimate about it. Bernie didn't lose because the, the primary was stolen from her or anything. You know, that's that's politics. But they they managed to pull it off really well. But it's it could end up being such a pyrrhic victory for them. I mean, Biden. It could have been somebody else. It could have been Kamala Harris or somebody like that. And this may end up, you know, in a disaster for them. What what do you think is going to happen going forward with the Democratic Party as an institution? Because it does seem like Trump's ascent to the presidency did accelerate some realignment that already had been in the works where you see the kind of so-called never Trumpers or, uh, you know, even Karl Rove has said positive things about Joe Biden being the candidate. But do you see any meaningful reorientation of the party and what will happen with all of those people who got politicized because of the candidacy of of Bernie Sanders, that the traditional Democratic Party doesn't speak to their issues or doesn't offer a vision that they embrace? That is a very difficult question to answer. I mean, on the first part of it, the question of, uh, like, is there a realignment of some kind going on? I mean, it is it is remarkable. I just saw yesterday or today, maybe even uh, a poll came out, you know, general election matchup poll. Uh, and you compare whites with a college degree and whites without a college degree, and it was remarkable. I mean, uh, whites with a college degree were for Biden by 30 points, and whites without a college degree were for Trump by 30 points. That's how I remember the poll anyway. Obviously, this is the direction in which American politics has been going for a while now, but you're right. It has accelerated it a tremendous amount, so that at this point, the Democratic Party is increasingly this a, a very odd, unwieldy coalition of you know upscale whites and uh, especially older middle class or working class black people and and you know obviously that's a, that's an oversimplification but it, but it's increasingly a, a coalition whose previous bases had a certain coherence and now it's it's moving in this in, in an increasingly incoherent direction and as far as what is going to happen in the future in terms of the Bernie Sanders support base I think that's a really important question because, you know, the, the fact is that there is not. I mean, despite all the talk about uh, this new generation of young progressive politicians, you know, what was one thing that was different about Bernie compared to most of the other progressive politicians that have emerged is that he had a political profile that was quite dis- and was seen as quite distinct from the Democratic Party. And that was on net an advantage for him. There were some people, obviously, who were turned off by that. You know, people who are diehard Democrats. They love being Democrats. They love the party. And the fact that he kept always kept a certain distance from the party was a downside for them. But there were, I think, a lot more people for whom it was, and especially young people, for whom it was uh, an attraction. 
And that, I think, is the aspect of of his politics that you don't see or yet, haven't yet seen replicated so much uh, among the other progressive politicians. So, I mean, he's not going anywhere. He's he's going to stay in the Senate and uh, hopefully, you know, be a, an important voice on the left. But I- quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I think a lot now depends on the conclusions and the lessons uh, that the other progressives, you know, AOC and and all the rest of them, end up drawing from this election. However, it turns out, and um, that I think is a big question going forward: is what conclusions will they draw from this whole story, and and how is, how is that going to orient their politics in the future? Moving on to the bigger realities that we're facing now in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, um, I saw online Corey Robin, the the author and thinker, um, put up some notes based on a conversation that he had with you uh, taking a walk. Uh, and it was sort of five points that underscored a thesis that he said you had offered about America as a failed state. I, this is why I wanted to talk to you. I'm wondering if you could just share with people kind of your overview of how you see this situation and, and why that conclusion? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who have had the same sort of observation, uh, especially, you know, in this in the course of this crisis, the coronavirus crisis, of seeing one institution after another, American institution, uh, failing in ways that you would not expect from not only would you would not expect them in many cases from you know from a, the richest country in the world or a rich advanced technologically advanced country but you know in some cases you wouldn't even expect them from a stable well governed you know middle income country so i've sort of become a connoisseur of this i've started you know filing away articles as i see them and i think uh, we're talking about maybe doing a, an issue a special issue on this uh, for jacobin maybe later in the year so you know, let's go down the list. Uh, first of all, there's these stimulus bills, which are very important to get cash in, the, in people's hands in order to salvage as much of the economy as possible as quickly as possible. And that's really important because if you, the longer this goes on, even just in, in terms of days or weeks, the more businesses are going to go bankrupt and disappear so that they can't revive after, after this is all over. The more people uh, go bankrupt or lose their homes or become detached from the labor market and are no, no longer able to reintegrate in the economy. So speed is of the essence. Everyone knows that. The economists have all been advising that. And what do you see with the implementation of this stimulus? There has been, it has exposed a an unbelievable breakdown in the the infrastructure of the government's ability to connect uh, monetarily with the population. So on the one hand, you have the IRS is going to have to process many of these payments, uh, the $1,200 payment to everybody. And it's been made clear, there's an article in Reuters a while ago, that this is just going to be impossible and that it may take many months. Well, many months. That you're, now you're talking about about X number of businesses that are, that are destroyed, X number of workers who become who face disaster because of those months. And now, you know, when when you say that, when you point something like this out, people will often people, you know, sort of Democrats will often or liberals will often say, well, yeah, th- that's what you get when you have you know Tea Party Republicans running everything. They hate the government. They want the government to fail. So that's the result. And they're not wrong about that. Uh, certainly, when it comes to the IRS. But then you look at the states. So, you know, a major portion of the stimulus is going to be implemented through the unemployment insurance system, which is a state federal partnership. So it's the state agencies that implement it. And 
in state after state, I mean, this has been known for a long time. Number one, the United States has a, a, such a decrepit unemployment insurance system just in terms of who qualifies, who is able to get benefits. We have a very small fraction of unemployed people who actually collect unemployment benefits because they make it deliberately as difficult as possible for you to access them so people give up. And the benefits are so are so minimal that it's, there's often not much of, a, of an incentive to go through all the hoops. That aside, just the in, in terms of the infrastructure, just in terms of the ability to get the payments people are entitled to into their hands in terms of applications and all the rest of it. California, New Jersey, there are a whole series of blue states where the Republican Party is, I mean, especially in California, the Republican, Republican Party might as well not exist in California. And yet you had a, a recent report from the California Legislative Analyst Office, which is like their version of the Government Accountability Office. It's like a congressional sort of analysis office that does um, policy work. They just came out with a report a while ago saying it could take up to a year for many Californians to get these benefits. Again, this is a stimulus that's in, intended to be imp, you know, getting cash into people's hands as quickly as possible to rescue the economy. So you know, if the 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 fact that you have uh, and you know many people have probably seen by now that there's a bunch of reporting on the fact that the the un, the computer systems of the unemployment offices in this country apparently all run on this obs this obsolete '60s era programming language uh, called COBOL, which nobody knows anymore except for, for like old retired former programmers. And the systems are all crashing. And, you know, like the governor of New Jersey just the other day sent out an urgent plea uh, on television. If anybody knows COBOL, please come and help, you know, fix our computer systems because otherwise we can't run our unemployment insurance. So, I mean, this is the sort of thing that you would expect to see in a country whose basic state structures are sort of disintegrating. I saw the other day that there are deep, serious, this has not yet, I think, gotten the attention it deserves. There are deep and serious problems with the U.S. Postal Service. The Postal Service is has always, in certain places, definitely in Brooklyn, where I live, uh, had a difficulty just doing its job, meeting its its service mission in terms of getting packages to people on time and so on. But now they are it, it's in a it's in a, a state of apparent uh, breakdown in many places, and this is especially concerning because now we go on to an, a, a different institution, a third institution, which is elections. So obviously, we are facing a situation in this country where we will not be able to have elections that will be perceived as legitimate by anybody unless we can implement some kind of a of a non-in-person voting system. So vote by mail is the obvious choice. Well, vote by mail requires a functioning postal service. And the Postal Service has recently uh, you know, made it clear that, that the way things are going, they are simply not going to be able, even if the system were to be set up or the Congress were to try to do it or the state governments were to try to do it, they wouldn't be in a position to get people, ballots to people and then get the ballots back uh, because they're, they're so completely overloaded. So, I mean, the postal, the postal service is, you know, is the sort of thing that's kind of like the backbone of any functioning uh, modern society. And the ability to hold elections, which obviously this is not the beginning of our problems with elections, clearly. I mean, this is another thing where people in, in other countries are just baffled by this. You know, how, how is it that the United States is not able to hold an election without it turning into a disaster? Just a couple months ago, we had the Iowa caucuses, which were just an absurd farce and probably and probably exposed the fact that they've always been an absurd farce. We just didn't know about it because it's never, it was never close enough to, to make a difference. So you know we've had one election after another that's been botched, and so there's a there's a deep lack of administrative capacity, state capacity, and and this affects one institute core institution after another in this country. Whether it's you know the the bureaucracy that deals with uh, uh, taxes and payments, uh, welfare benefits, and all the rest of it, or the post office, or the elections, and we could come up with more examples. So this I think um, is the sort of phenomenon that that the term you know, failed state or state failure really does apply to. It's interesting to watch. And obviously, we're, we're in the midst of a presidential election campaign. And I do think that Donald Trump holds a unique place in the story of the coronavirus pandemic for the way that he handled it. I mean, it's a grim designation. He's been the absolute worst person in this country. I don't dispute that at all. At the same time, you know, there's been this attempt to kind of lionize Andrew Cuomo, for instance, the governor of, of New York. And there's a lot of conspiracy buzz. Oh, he should be replacing Biden at the, you know, at the convention. And he really should be the one to run against Trump. Or you have Bill de Blasio, who endorsed 
Bernie Sanders, he's the mayor of New York, both Cuomo and de Blasio, at least in the initial phases of it, in the case of Andrew Cuomo, were disasters in how they handled this. Cuomo just signed a budget that is one of the most racist and repressive uh, budgets he signed, and he did it in the midst of a of a pandemic. We have coronavirus spreading like wildfire through prisons, not just in New York City, but across the state and around the United States. So, you know, the the big picture Democratic line is we need to replace Trump with, you know, compassion and unity and competence. And at the same time, some of the most powerful Democrats in the country have been pretty shitty in how they've handled this pandemic. That's why uh, in that uh, note that Corey posted about about our conversation, this this is how I got onto this question of these institutions that that liberals in this country they see as as really being what America is about. So it, for them, it's Ivy League institute, you know, Ivy League universities, uh, the charitable found big charitable foundations, the New York Times, these you know uh, MSNBC and Rachel Maddow. You know these are these are kinds of the, the institutions that most liberals look at and say, you know, our mission politically ought to be to make as much of America as possible work as well and be as as much of a force for good as these institutions and so it, it ends up being a sort of a blue state versus red state thing and i think that there there is a, a profound conviction on the part of many people or a desire to believe that these problems make you shake your head in disbelief that this country is going through are all the result of those people in those places in the red states and you know people who are very different from us but that's why I find it so fascinating to look at how this stuff goes down in blue states. I mean, like you said, I mean, look at New York State is one of the most liberal, one of the, or one of the most democratic uh, voting states in the country. Obviously, we have a democratic governor. You know, like you said, we have a, an epidemic of coronavirus in our prisons and no obvious solution to it. Um, we have in this state, obviously, a massive crisis of public health and uh, right now, New York State, the the great, relatively highly educated, you know, democratic voting blue state, is the world's epicenter of the coronavirus uh, and its spread. I, I would also add that Cuomo, just a, a couple months ago, I think, uh, came out with this. Um, he, what he's going to do? Maybe he's already done it. I haven't followed it, but um, he doesn't like the fact that there's a political party that goes on the ballot in New York called the Working Families Party. Uh, that gains influence and tries to push politics to the left. That's annoyed him for many years. So he just decided, well, what we're going to do is we're going to, uh, I think it was double or triple the number of signatures that this party needs to get on the ballot. Now, this is something I've written about in the past. I won't go into it in in great detail, but this is another thing where the United States is completely unique. No other democratic country makes it so that opposition parties have to jump through these hoops that the governing parties, the Democratic and Republican parties, don't have to jump through. So, I, and I think that this is actually the beginnings of maybe an explanation of why this country so uniquely suffers from these profound problems. Oh, but I would also mention the New York City subway, by the way, uh, which, as many people know, has been a complete uh, disaster in terms of uh, being on time, in terms of a million other things. This is, I think, the beginnings of an explanation of it. If you have a political system in which political competition is repressed so effectively, so that on the one hand, you're only allowed two choices in terms of political parties. But even then, most of the time, you're not even given two choices because in most places in this country, most offices are not even competitive. You know, and, and often, they, I mean, in the New York State legislature uh, in the last um, uh, midterm election, you know, I, f- I forget what it was, but uh, some enormous percentage of state legislative seats were uncontested. There was just one person on the ballot, sometimes only one person on the ballot in either primary. So there's literally one person that you could choose. So I think that that, you know, that is starting the beginnings of an explanation of how America got to this point is in large or in part, it's, it's an absence of sort of democratic pressure from below. And one of the reasons we have this absence of democratic pressure is because of our political system. But that, that absence, that, the fact that politicians don't feel sort of the, the hot breath of popular discontent down their neck, or at least it's not as pressing for them. I think is one major reason why the government fails us so systematically. 
you know, obviously it's it's sort of the huge elephant in the room, the way that our healthcare system in this country is structured and the fact that, you know, so many people ha- do have healthcare that is linked to their employment. Now they're going to be losing their jobs. Um, and many of them are going to be in a situation where they're going to be looking at exorbitant COBRA uh, to try to spend money they don't have on insurance that is not good. And you also have uh, the overwhelming of the bureaucracy by people who are by necessity, going to have to file for unemployment. But this this issue of the healthcare system that has been built up and supported by both major parties in this country and this linking of people's health to their employment or their accumulation of capital. I mean, in some ways, the story of this year so far, like, believe it or not, it's only what it's been, only been three months. But the story of this year of this year so far is incredible in terms especially in terms of this this healthcare issue. Obviously it was the centerpiece issue of Bernie Sanders both campaigns. And one thing I remember I look back on was the Nevada caucuses. So in advance of the Nevada caucuses there was a tremendous amount of um, anticipatory gloating or at least optimism on the part of people who are anti Bernie that the powerful culinary workers union in Nevada uh, which is a you know a very big militant union that has a, a very active membership, heavily Latino, and plays a big role in democratic politics in that state, including in the caucuses. The Culinary Workers Union had a leadership which um, was dead set against Medicare for all, and was communicating that to their members. And this was going to sink Bernie Sanders, because after all, the message was the message from the leadership of the union, which of course. The leadership of the union thought it was a great thing that they could attract people to the union by uh, offering a health insurance plan when many pe- people would otherwise not have one. So it's that sort of desperation that people have that can you know attract them to, to the union. And the argument that the leadership was using uh, with their members was the same one that you were hearing from people like Pete Buttigieg. Bernie's Medicare for All plan is terrible because you won't be able to keep your health insurance. You'll lose your private health insurance. I mean, this is obviously for reasons that are require no explanation. This is bullshit on the most cosmic level. You know, the, obviously the fact is that uh, Medicare for All is a public plan that everyone receives. It's more comprehensive than, at least in Bernie's version, than any private health insurance. So nobody could possibly lose out from a switch. I mean, maybe in, ta- in terms of taxes, people with upper incomes or whatever might on balance uh, pay more. But in terms of your coverage, nobody could possibly end up being less well covered under Bernie Sanders' plan than they are now. That's just not possible. So, but so it required this incredible suspension of disbelief in the discourse to perpetuate this idea that that Bernie's plan was somehow an electoral liability because people were going to be terrified that they were going to lose their insurance, and that was the the talking point that was given to those workers in Nevada. And you know, obviously, we all know what happened. They all defied, not all, but uh, in their large majority, they defied their union leadership and voted for uh, Sanders in the, in the caucuses by overwhelming margins, in many cases, to a large extent, because of the Medicare for All issue, as they made clear in interviews and, and in speeches at the caucuses, that was a major attraction for them. And when people would add, when reporters would sometimes, you know, rather baffled reporters who seemed surprised that these people would, you know, not realize the, the danger of Medicare for All, that they would lose their insurance... They, I mean, for one thing, there's the fact that their, their insurance plan is actually not so great and certainly not as comprehensive as, as Bernie's Medicare for All plan. But the, the, the main thing was, you know, the reporters would ask these people these questions, well, what about this? What about what your union leadership is saying? And they'd say, well, what if I lose my job? And it's as if it had never occurred to any of the people, the messaging people in the Democratic Party, the consultants and all the people who were crafting this line, it never occurred to them that for ordinary people, you know, if you lose your job, you lose your health insurance and then you're screwed. And so there is no, you know, you get to keep your insurance if you like it. That just doesn't exist under our current system. And then what happens right after the the primaries, the primary, you have this cataclysmic loss of jobs. We have another 7 million today. The the healthcare situation, the health insurance situation, forget about uh, coronavirus, just somebody gets hit, hit by a car, God forbid, or somebody, you know, falls down the stairs or they get some sort of illness or they have cancer or whatever. There are now uh, I, I think it's 15 million people, 16 million people just in the last three weeks have filed for unemployment insurance. Those are 16 million people that potentially have lost their insurance and many of them are going to find themselves in unfortunate situations medically and God knows what's going to happen. So this is an ongoing catastrophe. And actually, I have to say that given the obviousness of the importance of the medic, I mean, the, it's, it's, so, it's such a layup 
for Medicare for all as a as a as a policy, as a message, as a political platform. I have to say, I'm I'm surprised. I mean, I'm not surprised that Chuck Schumer isn't pushing for Medicare for all. I have to say, I'm, I'm surprised that there isn't hasn't been at least more controversy about it. I feel like even Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders has not made it as much of an audible issue, given the incredible potency of it, I would imagine, that you would expect. And I'm not 100% sure why. I don't really have an explanation for that. But I, you know, I think that you're right. This is one of, the, one of the core issues when it comes to state failure. And it's certainly one of the issues that people in other countries, they are aghast when they hear, they, don't, they find it difficult to believe. When they hear stories about how our healthcare system works, they say, "How do these? How do Americans do it? That, that's not possible." Well, I mean, that's yet another area of state failure. When Joe Biden, uh, when his handlers put up tweets for him that say things like, "No one should have to pay for a coronavirus test," and then people rightly say, "Well, then why should they have to pay for insulin, or why should they have to pay for cancer treatment?" The fact that there is no good answer that the Biden handlers and Biden himself, when he appears, can offer to that question, to me is a very ominous sign of where things are heading in the months to come in this election, that you don't have a good answer for how am I going to pay for my insulin? It's, it's a really big problem. Yeah. I mean, and, and not just uh, how are you, you know, why not, why not insulin? Why not cancer treatment? Why not the like treatment for coronavirus? <laughs> in other words, like, yeah, if you get tested, it'll be, we'll pay for it. But what if you test positive and then you need a whole battery of medical attention? And Biden is saying that uh, coronavirus treatment should be paid for, but he's not defining what that means. And I think this is what you're getting at. I mean, you know, if you my neighbor two doors down from me the other day died in his home, uh, elderly immigrant. And, um, you know, his son comes running up and he is a taxi driver himself and he left the door open and he's running and he's struggling with his mask to run up there. And, you know, why didn't that man go to the hospital? He doesn't have insurance. He didn't have insurance. He had underlying conditions that were not being treated because he couldn't afford it. And then he got sick with the virus and he died in his home. And, and you know, what I, th- what I think you're saying is, or what I hear you saying is, if you have uh, a very narrow uh, uh, you know, qualification for getting your health ailments paid for as a right, how, how on earth do you justify not paying for underlying conditions of people that are vulnerable to coronavirus? Yeah, or even associated conditions. I mean, what if you have coronavirus, you go to the hospital, you test positive, but it also turns out that you've got a heart problem that needs immediate attending to that's that's not related. I mean, does that, does that mean that you're going to go bankrupt because your attending physicians are, are going to be giving you treatments that you're not going to be able to pay for and the government's not going to pay for? The whole thing is so grotesque. Coming up with these very elaborate and I'm sure administratively very difficult to implement, probably, uh, systems to ensure that on the one hand, we can say that nobody is uh, going to have to pay for their coronavirus treatment while making absolutely sure that we don't cover people in some, you know, in more comprehensive way. And one thing that's, I think, important to remember is that it's not just that Biden and and et al. are opposed to uh, Medicare for all. It's important to remember that the that the healthcare industry has united in this lobbying operation, I forget what it's, Partnership for America Health or something like that. And their position is not just that they're against Medicare for all. They are opposed to any extension of public insurance of any kind under any circumstances. So even sort of halfway measures, you know, maybe raise the Medicaid eligibility, you know, to a higher income level or something like that, or reduce the Medicaid, the Medicare age of, of eligibility. They're they're one hundred percent hard against that, and you know you're not going to get Democrats standing up to that lobby, by, which by the way has hired some of the luminaries of the Obama administration as their spokespeople and lobbyists. Yeah, but if we want to go down that road too, I mean, you know, Jay Carney is the PR hack for uh, for Amazon right now, attacking people who are demanding worker protections, and the lawyer for Amazon that smeared a warehouse worker in Staten Island is a fundraiser for Joe Biden. I mean, yeah. Then when you start to talk about the healthcare industry and the cross pollination with the Obama Biden administration, it's just like your head will spin around. Yeah, what's so strange about this is that you know I remember in 2016. You know, I, I had the sense that Hillary Clinton, the Democratic Party, she was not a very good candidate, obviously, but they sort of handled their left, the people to their left. They handled that pretty well in the sense that they were adept at sort of knowing what to concede verbally, you know, knowing which parts of the left program was sufficiently popular that you had to pay lip service to it, but, you know, and which parts they could easily sort of go after and say, we don't like this. This time, this time I feel like it sort of slipped out of their control so that 
as the Democratic Party electorate and discourse have moved even further to the left uh, in the last four years, they've ended up somehow in their own positioning, in Biden's positioning and, and that of the establishment, it being sounding increasingly sort of uncompromisingly right wing or uncompromisingly hostile to any kind of progressivism. So that you do, I mean, you, you, these associations just look so bad. You know, like you said, the Amazon guy, all these comments from Biden. You really get a sense that it's sort of slipping out of their control in many ways. And it gets, goes back to my question of why don't you hear more panic from the Democratic Party establishment? On that note, I'm going to leave it there. Seth Ackerman, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Seth Ackerman is Jacobin Magazine's executive editor. You can find him on Twitter at Seth Ackerman. And that does it for this show. You can follow us on Twitter at Intercepted and on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our lead producer is Jack Desidoro. Our producer is Laura Flynn. Elise Swain is our associate producer and graphic designer. Betsy Reed is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Transcription for this program is done by Nuria Marquez-Martinez. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Next week, we are going to be bringing you episode one of a great new podcast series about a police killing in Chicago. It's called Somebody. Until then, I'm Jeremy Scahill. 